Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Across the Pond. We finally reached age. We can finally drink, Barry. We're episode 18. It's, it's super cool. We're finally adults now. We're getting into this podcasting game and hopefully we've learned a bit since our episode one. Oh, absolutely. I must actually go back and listen to that at some stage. Uh, I think we've come a long way. Well, let's get into our current episode. Pond, across the pond, with Barry and Chad. Well, like we said, uh, episode 18, gone quite a long way. Um, I've certainly enjoyed it. Uh, we've just heard a voice note from one of our uh, old friends to say that she's been holding off on actually upgrading one of her phones um, because she wasn't sure if she'd still be able to listen to the podcast um, on the new platform. Um, that certainly is a, a good place of commitment there, Barry. Without a doubt. And it's one of those things where um, on every single platform we should be on now. We've slowly been making our way onto the various apps and the various platforms. And so wherever you listen to your audio, wherever you watch your video, you should be able to find us. And if you can't, please let us know so we can make sure we're on your platform of choice. Absolutely. I mean, among all of that, we've also hit another accolade this week um, with our YouTube channel. Barry, tell us all about that. Yeah, so normally we focus on the audio stuff, right? So most of our most of our work is focused on people listening in their cars or in their commutes or at work and stuff. Yeah. But we do film the podcast and we put it on YouTube for people to watch if they'd like. And we've just hit a thousand views on the YouTube channel, which awesome. seems like a small number, but for us, it's actually a, a huge, huge <laughs> deal. So to have a thousand views on these videos is absolutely amazing. And we're so glad that people are watching it as well as listening to it. And for those who don't know, there are some amazing bloopers at the end of the YouTube videos that you just have to watch. So even if you're listening on a podcasting app right now, if you want to see the bloopers, the bloopers are on the YouTube. So you've got to go and check it out. So go and like those videos, subscribe to them. And thank you to those thousand people who are, who are watching those YouTube channels. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. I mean, just to look at all those bloopers, Barry makes it quite easy by putting a timestamp um, in the first comment of every video. So you can literally just open the video and not have to watch the whole episode. Just click on the bloopers um, timestamp and you'll go straight there. Barry, shall we get on to this past week? Let's do it, chat. The week that was. So let's go through what has happened this past week. I saw in the UK there has been an airline uh, that has essentially just had to shut down overnight. We've obviously been chatting about this a little bit in the podcast, um, you know, in other nations as well. Um, but this airline, Flybe, um, it's one that has been in financial difficulty for some time. Um, it was taken over by its current shareholder about a year ago or so. Um, and they were kind of uh, working with government to try and get some funding. Uh, the first part of this was to kind of get some concessions on on tax payments to just get a little bit of uh, relief in terms of their um, you know operating cash cycle um, and there was talks about a loan that didn't materialize um, obviously the coronavirus being the ultimate cherry on top I'm sure for a, a struggling uh, airline um, but I mean certainly we need we need to uh, have this chat in a global context as well. Without a doubt. I think that airlines are under the most pressure in this kind of environment right now because it's such a difficult business to be in without the funding necessary. And if you have this dip in flights, thanks to coronavirus, people don't want to travel. The flights are empty. The prices are going down and down. There's lots of drama with staff not wanting to fly. And so if you're in the airline business right now, you're in serious trouble because the way these businesses run is that they compete on price and they compete on very, very low margins of safety. And so that means if you're not getting that whatever occupancy rate you need, on those flights, you can get into trouble very, very quickly. I, I don't think there's any of these airlines that have huge war chests that they can look at in like a rough time or in downturn. Yeah. If you start losing momentum, you're in big trouble as an airline. So I think this might be the first of many, Chad. 
Absolutely. I mean, the most terrifying thing for me, if I go to their website or what was their website is now just one page. It's essentially an administration notice. Um, and the first little sentences, this page will not be monitored. Um, but essentially, all flights have been grounded and the UK business has ceased trading with immediate effect. Um, if you are due to fly with Flybe, please do not travel to the airport um, unless you've arranged alternative flight. And please note that Flybe is unfortunately not able to arrange alternative flights for passengers. Um, really such a terrible one for those who had flights with this airline. Yeah, it is. And it makes me think of when you when you buy travel insurance, one of the things that I've always wondered about is sometimes you can, they offer you insurance on what happens if the, the airline goes out of business. And I yeah. kind of always ignored that because I was like, what are the chances <laughs> the airline is actually going to go out of business, right? Yep. And now it's, really, now it's really real. So for all of those who are looking to fly in the next little bits, I think it's important to make sure your travel insurance covers this kind of eventuality. Yep. Otherwise, you could be out of pocket in a big way because an airline like this can go under so, so quickly. And don't yep. think it's only the small airlines, right? All the airlines are being affected. So I think we have to think more carefully about our travel insurance going forward if we are going to travel at all. Absolutely. I mean, let's talk about Thomas Cook, which happened in the past couple of months. I know of people who were stranded in other countries, um, you know, who had to actually upon themselves book additional tickets um, and actually just had to lose money, like you said, unless they, they had the, those insurances in place. So, uh, yeah, certainly something that is an important consideration going forward. On to the next one. This is our weekly special, it seems, um, but no joke, really. Uh, the coronavirus update. So this is the updates as of today, the 9th of March. Um, obviously, th these numbers are moving so dramatically, so we kind of have to put that point in time. Um, but as at the moment, there are 108,000 people who have been diagnosed uh, from inception of this virus. Um, and if you actually take a look at it, 60,000 of those, around 56%, have actually recovered from this virus. Quite an interesting point, that. Yeah, I think it's an important thing to remember. Um, with there, there's a lot of panic that's circling on social media, and a lot of people are very, very worried about the implications. And rightly so. This is a serious risk of a global pandemic that I think is getting uh, bigger and bigger and bigger every single day. But it's important to realize that this panic is is somewhat misguided in certain ways. So th the, the nature of this virus is that it is very contagious. It spreads very, very quickly. But the vast majority of people are going to recover as long as you're taking care of yourself, as long yeah. as you're going to get the right medication, and you self-quarantining yourself. The most important thing is that anyone who has these symptoms or anyone who's going through who has the virus needs to do the absolute best to ensure that there's no other contact with other human beings. The only way you're going to kill this virus is to by isolating it and by, by killing it that way yeah. um, and while we wait for a vaccine. And so I think that it's important to realize that by getting the virus is not a death sentence, right? If you're healthy and if you're relatively clever and smart about what you do, you should be fine. But the mission is to try and stop it spreading so that it doesn't put undue stress on our medical system as a whole. Indeed. I mean, talking about that vaccine we've seen this past week, uh, Trump in the US has signed an $8.3 billion emergency package. Um, the thing that I've seen come out here is that uh, he only asked for $2.5 billion, um, but yeah, Congress gave him $8.3. A large majority of this package is going to be spent on trying to get that vaccine in place. America trying to step in to sort of ease off the pressure. 
Yeah, it's, it's really important. Obviously, America is a giant player in this whole game, and hopefully by combining the efforts of the Asian scientists who've been working on the vaccine, or trying a potential vaccine for a while, and hopefully the U.S. power yeah. also helps that. I think it's important to note as well, though, that it's not just about finding the vaccine. It's also about distributing it logistically. So once we sure. create a vaccine, which we hope we will, I think the biggest challenge for us um, resource-wise and, and, and capability-wise is how do we logistically distribute it across the world? Um, and so these resources not only to go and fund creating the vaccine, it's to understand what supply chains are we going to use to get this vaccine to all corners yeah. of the globe? Because I think it's inevitable this virus is going to get every, ev everywhere. I don't think any country is going to be going to be immune to it. And yeah. so, yeah, th that's an important thing to think about. But first, we have to get the vaccine itself. Well, let's talk a little bit about this, the spread that's happened this past week. Um, Italy is now the worst affected outside of China. Um, that has picked up really, really quickly uh, since we last spoke. Um, they've essentially now resorted to trying to quarantine a quarter of the population. Obviously, north of Italy is the, the worst um, affected. Um, they've closed some schools, um, banned free movement and gatherings of recreational, cultural, sports and religious types. Um, and uh, just a little update on our last week. Uh, the Vatican has now confirmed that the Pope has tested negative for the virus and uh, he actually live streamed a ceremony yesterday instead of his usual physical appearance. Yeah, we've we've seen it all across the world. Various conferences and various public gatherings being cancelled left, right, and centre. Yeah. A lot of conferences have been trying to do the virtual thing, trying to live stream the speeches to the to the various delegates around the world. And I think we're going to see more of that. I think it's it's prudent to avoid these kinds of big gatherings. I think yeah. it's 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 silly to try and get them try and get them done. I know in the US there's a big South by Southwest conference which brings hundreds of thousands of people from around the world to go and visit that conference. And that is completely shut down as well. Yeah. So there's, there's big question marks about b other things coming up this year. The Tokyo Olympics is being chatted about. What are they going to do about the Olympics? Are they going to cancel the Olympics completely as well? And there's a number of these big events which we have to think very carefully about. Because as we said, the more people gather in one spot, the quicker this thing can spread. So I think as the human race, we're trying to do our best to try and avoid that where possible. Um, Italy certainly um, has, has rushed up quickly. But Chad, I'm, I must let you know, South Africa is also in on the Action now we have right. as time of recording we've got four four confirmed cases uh, right. I think one in Durban two in Gauteng and one somewhere else as far as I remember and uh, there's been talk about schools closing and various other things here in Gauteng as well I know that there's a there's a, the pr a private primary school called Grayson Prep here in Joburg which was closed down today right. because one of the one of the parents of the kids came into contact with someone who was had a, had the confirmed virus so they closed the whole school and sent all the kids home just to make sure no, nothing untoward happens there and they can fix that situation so i think we're going to see lots of these things happening lots of things being cancelled lots of these public gatherings being avoided and people staying at home being by themselves yeah absolutely i mean one of those public gatherings um one which we potentially may have overlooked obviously like you said the olympics being much more of an important one um, but if you look at the james bond franchise and uh, how big those films are across the globe they've actually taken the decision as well to shift the release of the film from april um, to september um, which is also quite a quite a big effect there Definitely. I think we're going to see lots more of that. So lots more of these things are going to get pushed. We chatted about Apple potentially pushing their launch dates. Yeah. And so I'm not surprised by this one bit. I think that um, the, the Bond producers understand how the market works. So you don't want to launch a movie in this kind of climate right now. So I think we're going to go through a bit of a, a, a dull period, a bit of a dead period when it comes to media and when it comes to products over the next few months, while the world tries to come to terms with this pandemic and tries to figure out a way to stop it in its tracks and, and make progress. Some good yeah. news, Chad, came out of South Korea yesterday 
yesterday. Right. And apparently the number of new cases in South Korea started to decline day by day. So that's one small piece of good news, um, an example of how a country can quarantine quite effectively, although it is a yeah. small country. But it, at least it's some sort of like positive news in the, in the midst of all, everything else. Yeah, I mean, I saw another bit of uh, positive news as well in that uh, one of the Chinese um, emergency hospital facilities, which was actually just almost a repurposed um, kind of arena, if you'd like, um, has also been closed. Um, all of the patients who were in there have uh, have been discharged. Um, and so they've they've now been able to to close some of these facilities. So certainly some some good news going on there. Um, in terms of, like you said, just the, the uh, controlling of, of public gatherings and, and all of those kinds of things, I think we're going to see some other effects. Um, I have a job interview tomorrow um, and I've actually been sent ahead of the interview um, a declaration that I need to sign uh, a declaration that says uh, that me or anyone else visiting um, has not traveled within the past 14 days um, or come into direct contact with um, which is specifically defined as two meters for more than 15 minutes uh, people who have traveled to the below list of countries including mainland China Italy South South Korea, uh, Cambodia, Hong Kong, the list goes on. Um, quite an interesting one. I've never had to sign something like that for a job interview. Yeah, very interesting. Um, I think that we're going to see a lot of those people trying to take control of their workplaces and put extra protocols in place to do their best to, to avoid this. Um, so I wonder, I wonder what's going to happen, Chad, when you do go. I wonder if they're going to swab you down and make sure you don't have any coughs <laughs> or any fevers before you go into the building. Hey, you never know. We'll have to see. Um, but I mean, kind of on on the other end of the spectrum, we've, we've obviously spoken quite a bit about mass hysteria. Um, and I've seen images of shelves completely empty where there once was toilet rolls. Um, it seems like people in the UK um, at Costco and Asda are going absolutely crazy stockpiling up on toilet paper. Um, Louis Theroux, the uh, filmmaker, has put out a tweet um, saying, honest to God, guys, if I were panic buying for a long-term apocalypse type scenario, toilet paper wouldn't even be top 25 on my shopping list. I mean, do you agree, Barry? Yeah, I don't understand this. I really don't. Uh, I, I know there's, there's, there's groups of people who people call preppers who love preparing for these kind of apocalypse-type situations and they'll buy all the tin food and the toilet paper and the rice and the, all that good stuff so that they can live in their house for months at a time. I just don't get it. I, I think a lot of it is just it's panic, and we hear the word toilet paper and it sounds like a good idea. I'm just going to buy tons of toilet paper. Um, but maybe there are b bigger priorities we should be caring yeah. about. I don't know. <laughs> Well, definitely. I mean, Tesco as well have started to ration portions of pasta, baked beans, and UHT milk. I believe they're almost out of stock of pasta um, on their online business, um, which is an insane thing if you think of a distribution warehouse sitting somewhere in the UK, um, which pretty much has no more pasta left. Uh, really interesting. And, and hopefully people can kind of start holding back on, on all that panic and hysteria. Looking at today, obviously we spoke about the 9th of March being today's date. And we've seen the UK top share index having its worst day since the financial crisis. I was chatting to Barry a little bit before the episode. I mean, I believe this is happening in South Africa as well. The oil and mining shares are being most predominantly affected. 
Um, from what I've seen on the matter, it's obviously started out um, as the effects of the coronavirus, where essentially the demand for fuel has been cut back with travel um, being cut back across the globe. Um, and so that obviously caused the oil price to drop. Obviously, the OPEC nations wanted to kind of get a bit more control on the price, and they agreed to hold back production to kind of restrict supply a little bit to try and get that price up a bit. Um, they've also then demanded the non-OPEC nations to uh, also do the same thing. Um, and Russia actually just came straight back and said, no, we're not going to do it. Um, on the back of that, Saudi Arabia, one of the OPEC nations, has now uh, detailed a little bit of a poker play, really. Um, and they are cutting their prices um, and they plan to increase production. Such an interesting one um, to cause such massive moves on the global markets. Yeah, it's been a crazy day. Um, I, I was sitting, I was sitting at home this morning, and my dad gave me a call. My dad trades some forex on the side, and he was telling me about the oil price, and was telling me about some of the global markets that had opened by that time in the morning. Right. And as we saw that each time zone open, we saw every single market across the world, right from the Asian markets to the European markets, to Africa, and now into the U.S., have a terrible, terrible day. And so there's been a huge bloodbath because of this oil price drop. And like you say, lots and lots of moving pieces in the oil discussion. I think oil is an industry that I know very little about, and I. Yeah. Understand all the various dynamics, and I'd, I'd, I'd be hesitant to say anyone really understands all the dynamics, right? Yeah, there's a lot of politics involved, there's a lot of ego between big countries, and because the oil price is so determinative of various economic conditions around the world. Once oil price moves, everything else moves with it. And yep. so I think for, for, for the whole world, all the markets were hit today. And I, I, don't, I don't think it's the bottom yet. I think the coronavirus is going to continue to eat into those markets as, as supply chains get um, disrupted, as products get pushed across, as, as things happen in the world. And I think as investors, we have to be quite cautious and not panic sell in the midst of all of this bloodbath yep. and try to be as rational as we can when thinking about those decisions. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a hard one to, to know. But um, I mean, looking at this, um, obviously today being the, the peak of the drop, um, but I mean, to potentially these losses could extend further. Quite worrying. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't think we've seen this kind of drop for, for a couple of years now, definitely not since the financial crisis. So yep. we have to wait and see if it continues to get worse or not. Um, again, the markets are, are, are driven by emotion, right? At, at the end of the day, a lot of these like one-day movements are because of huge emotional swings yep. in, in the news, in the media and whatnot. And so I think it's important for, for, for rational investors who are thinking long-term is not to get caught up in all of this and actually think rationally about what you're going to do decision-wise. Um, and as a, as, a, as a world market, I think it's important that we just get our heads around how we're going to tackle this virus and how we're going to run the economy with all of these constraints and not just run away with the, the doomsday apocalypse scenario before it's actually mature. Absolutely. Well, yeah, hopefully that can happen. And we, we see some sensibility coming around again. Let's move on to our next segment. Stuff I found interesting. So welcome to Stuff I Found Interesting this week. This is the segment, if you're new to this podcast, um, this is the segment where we literally throw on anything um, that came across us this past week uh, to which piqued a little bit of interest. And for me, it was something called a predictive index survey. So I was part of an interview process where I had to complete the survey um, before going through to the actual one-on-one -on -one interview. Um, and essentially what the survey does is asks you two questions. Um, with a whole bunch of words um, describing emotions, describing attributes, characteristics, all of those kinds of things. And the first question is, tick the words you think people expect you to act like. The second question is then, tick the words you think accurately describes you. 
And uh, for me, this is kind of one of those esteem tests, really. If you think about uh, being back in school, being in your sort of life orientation and, and looking at the differences between, you know, what, what, what you think people expect of you versus what you think you're actually um, embodying. This is kind of one of those things. Um, but the interesting output of this is that it outputs a profile um, which is tailored to you, um, describing how you, how you work essentially. They've got 17 profiles uh, across their platform. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. I, I found the results incredibly accurate. Um, I actually sent it through to uh, one of my past bosses, who is also a listener of the podcast, um, and, and kind of asked him to give me his take on it. And he completely agreed as well. Um, so I completely strongly recommend doing this uh, for just a bit of self-awareness. Um, and also, if you manage a team, um, I think this is a great tool um, to actually know how each person um, actually handles their work um, and w what it is they're looking for, what motivates them. And on the other hand, um, some of the negatives as well um, to avoid sort of overloading them with. I think just such a really great tool, Barry. That sounds fascinating, Chad. Can you give us an example of some of the words? Are there, are there adjectives I'm assuming? Can you give an example of some of the words that you had to choose from? Yeah, absolutely. Um, some of the ones that I didn't select are, are kind of courageous, um, you know, tenacious, those types of words. Some of the other ones are organized, calm, thoughtful, uh, conscientious, all of those, those types of words. And, and so it's okay. fascinating for me how algorithms are able to map your responses um, on just two questions. Um, to one of these 17 profiles. I mean, if we were to look at at my profile, it's the operator profile. Um, and, and it's described as uh, operators are people you can count on, patient and conscientious. They're usually among the most cooperative people on any team. They will remain stable, thorough, and relaxed in most circumstances, um, which which is fantastic. But it's given me some some good insights. Um, so, I mean, if you look at my common drivers, these would be reassurance, uh, opportunities to work with facts, which I thoroughly enjoy and, and need, um, you know, need information, um, understanding of rules and structure um, and freedom from unchanging priorities. Um, and then if you look at some of the blind spots, uh, I can sometimes be highly task focused, often overly cautious, um, uncomfortable with ambiguity, um, and I need a plan to follow. So for me, it, it's helped definitely target some of the roles that I'll be looking at next. Um, and I'm obviously not the right fit for, say, a startup environment. I think that's really cool. I, I've always been somewhat skeptical of these sorts of things. I mean, I've done tons of these tests that, that yeah. claim to tell you your whole life story and all your personality traits and whatnot. <laughs> and some are good, some are bad. Um, but yeah. I think that a lot of them can be really helpful, like you say. I think we're all kind of searching for, for some sort of self-knowledge or trying to understand ourselves better. And because we live on our own heads, it can get very confusing as to exactly yeah. who, it, who we are and who we're projecting who we are to other people. So these tests are a great way to just kind of hold a mirror up to our personality, hold a mirror up to ourselves, and try and give us a different way to look at why we act the way we act, or why we are happy in certain situations and not happy in others. Um, and so I think as long as we can we can pull these pull the value and, and learn something from these tests, I think they're amazing. Um, yeah. I don't think we should cast our entire judgment based on them. I think we should Definitely. always go with our gut and go with like um, more more like data based uh, decisions when we can. But it definitely like paints color onto those onto those decisions. 
I think another important point, Chad, that you ch chatted about is when you're doing it as a team, when your whole team is doing it, it often helps to understand how to work better with other people, right? So maybe I have a colleague who's in my team who's very, very different to me personality-wise, yeah. and maybe that, maybe because of that, we clash a little bit. We don't quite, we don't quite get each other, and we frustrate each other. We have pet peeves. We're too scared to talk up about <laughs> and, and whatnot. These exercises can be great, and I, I've seen it an example on a previous team that I was a part of, in yeah. understanding cool. Who are you as a person and what makes you tick? And the moment you open up that discussion, you might find that, hold on, I know why I'm frustrating that person now because this thing that I'm saying hits their exact pet peeve on that side. Yeah. Or yep. I know how to motivate that person. And if Chad, if I know you need to have facts and you need to have something to yep. work from, then yep. I can do my best to ensure that I give you that and then that's going to make our working relationship that much better. And so yeah. I think doing it as a team is fantastic to understand how different people work and that allows you to pull out the complementary skills in a team and actually make them more efficient. So that's super cool. Yeah, I completely agree there. And uh, like you said, the, the, the team application, I think, is the, is the ultimate here. So if, if you're managing a person as well, um, to, to sort of know who it is that you're managing. And that's why I think uh, for an interview process, I think it's fantastic that they've brought something like this on board. Um, because it's very possible that I may not be a good fit. Um, and uh, for me, it's, it's important that they consider that uh, ahead of time. Moving on to the next one, uh, Barry, you've been on the biography game. Um, you wrote, read one uh, by Walter Isaacson a few few months back and now you're on to your next tell us all about it indeed so as i mentioned when i when i read the da vinci biography a while ago walter isaacson is my favorite biography writer or biographer that's the word i think <laughs> um, he's absolutely great and he's done he's done so many amazing books and so i pick up anything he's ever written basically uh, by default and so at the moment i'm working through the the albert einstein one so i'm showing that to youtube viewers right now nice. and the albert einstein biography about his life and kind of his career as as probably the most famous scientist. I think when everyone, when anyone thinks about scientists, Einstein's probably the first name that comes to mind. And uh, he's, he's well known as this genius from all around the world. And like the, the, the breakthroughs he made in physics and for the understanding of our universe have been absolutely revolutionary. But for someone outside of physics like myself, I kind of, I know Einstein's name, I know the E equals MC squared, but I've got no idea what that means and I've got no idea why it's important, right? Because it lives in the world of physics and my last physics experience was in grade 12 when I was still doing like Newton's laws of motion, yep. right? Yep. And so it was really cool to read, I, I'm still reading it, but it's been really cool to work through his career step by step and have, and have a biographer who's not a scientist try and explain to you why his ideas were so revolutionary. And by going through this process, I am becoming even more impressed than I was before. I don't think we actually understand, those of us outside of physics, how big a shift his work made to the way we understand the universe. He basically came into physics at a time where Isaac Newton's laws were kind of the the foundation and the assumptions on the top of everything that was built because they were amazing yeah. laws. They predicted all of all, all of the gravitational work and all of, the, all, of all sorts yeah. of things. And basically everyone's work was building on the top of Newton. And Einstein came along and realized that there were holes in the theories um, in, in physics at the time. And instead of bowing down to Newton's assumptions, he basically threw them away and started from scratch with a new theory. And he called that theory the special relativity. Right? And special relativity became Einstein's crowning jewel because what he was able to do was not use the, the assumptions and preconceptions of the past, which were doing an amazing job. So there was no reason to throw them out. But just by throwing a new theory in there and challenging those assumptions, he came up with this revolutionary idea that can be best be described as the fact that time is relative and space is relative. 
And th those two key ideas are so weird and so counterintuitive <laughs> that you can read about them again and again and again, and they still make no sense. But the equations that he built from these ideas and the, and the experiments that he did and everything proved how gravity works, how forces move, how the universe is made up in such an accurate way that it's our best bet as to how the universe is made up today. So I think it's important to realize for people outside of science how important Einstein actually was. There are huge debates online as to whether if Einstein didn't exist, would we have got to his ideas? And some people think we would never got there, right? Some people think if we would have got there, it might have taken us another hundred years for someone to ignore the common, like, common canon and the common jargon that was used in the industry and think about it from an entirely new perspective. And so Einstein really was a once-in-a-generational type mind who was able to look at something from first principles, throw all his weird creativity into that problem, and bring up some of the most important ideas ever that have really transformed how we think about physics and the universe. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, I completely agree with you there in that um, I am definitely far removed from this discussion. Um, I also, like you, studied uh, Isaac Newton's laws um, in, in physics in grade 12 um, and, and kind of didn't really get further than that. Um, obviously, we all know of uh, Einstein, um, but in terms of the specifics, um, that, that's a fascinating point um, to actually look back and, and wonder if a person hadn't come up with a certain thing, would we have kind of got there by ourselves? And that's always a fascinating discussion. I wonder why people even bring it up. Um, it, it's really one of those where, you know, who got there first? Is that more important than the fact that we actually got there um, at all? And uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's an interesting discussion to have. In terms of what his discoveries have actually opened up for us um, as a species and in terms of developments and, and, and those kinds of things, I think it's a little bit more complex than looking at, um, you know, somebody who's an invented a tangible good where we're able to say, well, the light bulb was invented by this particular person. Um, do you have any sort of examples of, of some of the possibilities that have been opened up as a result of his discoveries? Definitely. So, so for all scientists out there, if I butcher this, I do apologize. Please do not take my word at, at, at first glance. But as far as I understand, what his, what, his, uh, what his breakthroughs brought about was this idea of a quanta, so a, right. a quanta of light. So previously, light was assumed to be a wave function. And so it was assumed to be a consistent wave that was then bounced off objects, and that's how our eyes would see light. And that's how light would travel, right? Um, when he came, came along and proved that, that time and space are relative, he showed that light moves in what they call quantum packets. Right. And what that allowed for was a huge change in the way we think about the nature of atoms. So it opened up, I'm sure people, some people will know the terms of quantum mechanics and, and, and quantum technology and those sorts of things. Or anything at the quantum level was brought about by Einstein. Right. So he was the precursor to all nuclear technology. He was the precursor to all kind of subatomic um, mechanization and subatomic um, research. Things like the, the Large Hadron Collider built on the back of Einstein's work. Things like the, the, the Space Shuttle and how we think about telescopes and how we think about astronomy. All of these sorts of things were built off the idea that light is not a wave. It's actually um, quantum packets that are being sent from whatever the light source is. And, and the fact that those, those equations were put in place allowed for a lot of huge breakthroughs when it comes to material science, so creating new materials and, and a lot of chemistry work, as well as the mechanical stuff, as well as rockets and nuclear technology and whatnot. Because once we understood how those particles move and how they interact with each other, we then have a much better chance of engineering what we want to engineer. Right. So Einstein's ideas allowed for a lot of science fiction type ideas to actually come to come into being because it changed everyone's mindset. 
at the time, all the engineers and all the physicists were thinking of light in a certain way, and therefore they had constrained their minds and constrained what they could build based on yeah. what they thought the laws of physics actually were. When Einstein comes along and shows you that, hold on, what you've always thought was true is actually not necessarily true, and you should think about it in a different way, all of a sudden it allowed all the other creative minds around them to go and invent a whole bunch of new things. So I agree with you, it's not important who comes, with these, comes up with these discoveries, but it's important that there is someone who is creative enough and is weird mm -hmm. enough, like Albert Einstein was, to make that shift from one commonly accepted worldview to another. And it kind of begs the question as to what other worldviews do we have and we take for granted right now that are completely wrong or perhaps yep. are open to interpretation. And so when another Einstein comes along in whatever field is going to come along in and thinks about it from first principles, we might face the exact same mind shift, which could open up a whole new world of innovation. And so I think it's inspiring to me, Chad, because the ability for him sitting in like complete obscurity this this german guy working in a swiss patent office he wasn't famous he wasn't well known he couldn't even get a job at a university when he came up with these discoveries right wow but he had this creative mind that was able to ignore previous kind of assumptions and just go on a chase this random rabbit hole following his curiosities and and finding this 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 magical breakthrough that really changed the world of science that is absolutely fascinating, uh, and like you said, incredibly inspiring. Um, I mean, I mean, I think if we, if we kind of generalize that to our own lives and uh, and actually just look at things from first principles, um, I think we we all can learn a lot of things. Sometimes we just accept the, the status quo. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about audit days um, where you know you kind of get onto an audit and, and how was it done last year? Um, and it's kind of that you know, like you said, I think we can all learn so much if we actually strip it straight back to basic obviously in the audit world um, you know what, what are the key risks where are we going to actually place our attention what does our firm methodology say um, and actually start start from scratch um, rather looking at what we did previously I, th I think there's loads of lessons to learn from that definitely and I think that is the key to everyone who's found success in this world it's that they're able to use original thinking to create yeah. new things right I think so much of us are, are very influenced by what we read by what we watch and what we take in and I understand that because we want to learn from the experts around us definitely. but for those true creative original thinkers who are able to maybe listen to the expert advice for what it's worth, but are able to ignore certain things and, and think about, if I was to try and solve the problem today without knowing any of the previous information, what new methods could I try? Or what new creative ways could I look at this problem with? And the more we are able to do that, the more original our thought is gonna be, and the, more, the better chance we have of creating a breakthrough. But also, we're gonna fail a lot more. Yeah. So it's, it's that risk-reward balance that, that people get caught up on, right? Original thinking is difficult, and it's, and it's kind of, um, there's peer pressure against it because you yeah. fail a lot. Because every, every new weird idea you have, 99% of them aren't going to work. And so yeah. you have to have the courage and almost the self-confidence to not care about what other people think about you, but be willing to chase down weird ideas. And those people who are willing to chase down weird ideas, when they get it right and when they get lucky and they find one that's really revolutionary, that's when they change the world. And all of those people who are following in the footsteps of the people who came before them, they are just followers. And all of a sudden, they are, they're behind the eight ball. So I think in all yeah. of our lives, as you say, Chad, the more we can think about things from first principles and not just take the experts for, for their word all the time and think creatively about how to approach this problem differently, that's going to result in more original thinking and hopefully better solutions. 
couldn't have said that better myself, Barry. Um, you're completely right. The risk of failure, um, which I think we we kind of attribute far too much of our attention towards. Um, and secondly, efficiency. Um, you know, we kind of want to be the most efficient beings we, we can be. And that's kind of why I think we also stick to the way things have been done before. Um, and, you know, kind of challenging things from, from first principles is, is obviously going to take a lot more time. Um, but like we just discussed, I think the rewards um, certainly outweigh that. Let's move on to our next segment. Looking ahead. Right, so in looking ahead this week, we are looking at a Google moonshot. So, Chad, we spoke a, a while ago in one of our episodes about Google's rebranding to Alphabet to be this group of companies that wears Google's one of the subsidiaries. And they did that to try and like diversify their portfolio and get a better sense of what the Alphabet group is going to do. In that Alphabet group of companies, there's a company called X, which is basically the home of Google moonshots. And moonshots are exactly the kind of thing we were chatting about Albert Einstein before. It's these crazy ideas that seem ridiculous on the outset, but they have a small chance of being really revolutionary. And so I thought it was interesting to look at a brand new one that started. So out of this X, this moonshot factory, this company X, they call it, they've launched a new company called Tidal, which is a company dedicated to using AI to protect the ocean against unsustainable fishing practices. Right. right. So the ocean is this giant, untouched kind of resource that we use. We, we, we understand so little about it. Yeah. I think it's true that we understand more about the moon than we do about the bottom of the ocean, yeah. which is crazy because the ocean is right on our shore, literally, yeah. and yeah. the moon is so far away. And so the ocean has kind of eluded us uh, when it comes to being able to study it, being able to work with it because of various um, constraints. When it comes to the water pressure as you go down, yeah. obviously we can't breathe underwater, so it kind of restricts some of that um, movability. And it's quite dangerous, the bottom of the ocean, because of all the predators yeah. and kind of the animals that are, that are in the depths. Um, but what has happened is that because as the world population has increased and increased and increased, we fished more and more and more. And in a lot of instances, because of global warming and because of overpopulation, these fishing practices are becoming more and more dangerous when it comes to sustainability. So basically, what this company is trying to do is trying to tackle pollution in our oceans, which is obviously a huge concern, as well as overfishing. And to do this, they are trying to use the latest in machine learning and AI to do what humans could not do, right? So, so instead of having thousands of scuba divers down in the ocean depths testing various things and testing um, migration patterns of fish and trying to understand why this overfishing happens or how we can sustain these things going forward. They want to put sensors and whatnot in the water and use AI to monitor fish patterns, to monitor the way the oceans are changing because of climate change, and then get better data-based decision-making powers to those who are setting policies about overfishing. Right, so these technologies are going to try and bring more visibility to what's happening under the water and give better understanding to those, ec those economists and those biologists who are thinking carefully about how to avoid overfishing. This is absolutely fantastic. I mean, I think it's, it's just such a great thing that we're starting to think about our effect on the planet. Um, fish and overfishing um, being one of those. We've seen a whole bunch of species go completely extinct um, because we just kind of don't pay enough attention to them. Um, and now that we've got all these tools like AI and machine-based learning, I think it's fantastic that we've, uh, we've seen Google put this as one of their bets, one of their many bets under the Alphabet holding company. Um, in terms of the how far they are with this, Barry, I mean, is this kind of just still a, a bit of a plan that they're, that they're looking at? Um, or have they actually started developing some of this software, some of these uh, sensors? Yeah, so, the, so funny enough, the software and whatnot is all already there. It's, it's kind of one of these, these ideas that has been working in 
um, on land-based stuff. So basically okay. what is is facial recognition for marine animals, if you think it's about no it way. in its, its most simplest way. Yeah. Wow. So there's, amazing, there's, there's an amazing video you can watch where they've put a camera underwater and it shows the little boxes picking up each individual type wow. of fish in a ginormous like, s- school of fish. So all, all they're looking to do is take existing technology that already works on land and already we're using in various applications around the world and use it underwater. So obviously there's some modifications that need to be made to make sure it's sustainable underwater and whatnot. Yeah. And obviously the, the software needs to be tweaked slightly. But if you're able to put a cameras around the ocean in, in, in key fishing areas and really monitor what does the population look like, how are these schools moving around, and what is happening to these environments, you're then able to make better decisions. So, Chad, the company itself is quite new, but the technology has actually been around for a couple of years. And all it right. is is a new application to try and solve a, a pressing problem. And that's one of the reasons that I think AI is so important and why I really love the field of AI is because the potential for this technology is absolutely endless. This is one of 10,000 different applications for this technology, and we're only beginning to discover what's possible with this tech. What it does is allows for a brand new field of like marine conservation to to really get the data they've been so starved of for so long because people aren't getting data from underwater. Yep. If we get the data into those oceans, we get a better sense of what's going on. It can open up whole new possibilities, and so that's why I'm excited about this one. Yeah, I completely understand that excitement, and uh, I mean this is revolutionary, like you said, um, but it is certainly just the first step um, after we we know which regions are being overfished which species are being overfished um, then it it comes to the question of, of who's going to actually regulate it uh, who's going to make sure that only a certain quota is is fished and and uh, further than that uh, how we as consumers as well are able to make sure that the companies we're buying from um, are adhering to those regulations um, which I'm sure opens up a little bit of an opportunity for someone who's keen to do that kind of work too Definitely, and that's where the rubber hits the road. When we actually take all of this data and how do we apply it to to move whatever cause we want to move in the right direction. It reminds me of another talk I attended at a machine learning conference called the Deep Learning in DARPA last year. And there was an ecologist there who was chatting about a project in the Serengeti, which is kind of the Kenya, Tanzania region, where there's huge migrations of animals across the Serengeti. And uh, basically, they had a similar type project where they're putting cameras up on various trees around the Serengeti and using AI to monitor that migration and monitor how these animals were moving. And she was saying in that talk that 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 data changed her job completely. Because instead of guessing, instead of trying to like use old data about population methods that were years old and whatnot, she was able to turn her entire job into a brand new one because of the data that she had available. And so I think what this is going to do is going to give policymakers actual information to act off yeah. rather than yeah. just kind of bowing to political pressure or to social justice pressure or to activist pressure that can maybe be yep. mis- misaligned or maybe it's not true, right? So maybe the overfishing concern is more exaggerated than it actually is or perhaps yep. it's not as exaggerated as it should be. And so all this does, it gives us objective information to make decisions. And hopefully that leads to better policy decisions being made by governments, made by by cause-based organizations, and hopefully pushes us in the right direction. So the more data, the better. The more data we have, the better decisions, hypothetically, we can actually make. Completely agree there. And uh, yeah, I'm just so great that we've got this data now and we're, we're actually looking for it. Um, I think that's that's a fantastic thing. Um, so we'll, we'll certainly keep an eye on that and, and see how it tracks on. Let's move on to our next insert. Develop and grow. Right, so welcome to Develop and Grow. This is the self-help kind of section of our podcast. Uh, we're 
always looking to uh, just become better people, uh, improve ourselves. Um, and uh, sometimes we, we talk about things that, that we've learned ourselves and, and kind of share our own insights. Um, and others, we actually look to some of the other speakers in the space um, and really just share things that we found valuable. Um, so this week, it's just two of my own insights um, that I, I kind of just thought about. And, and the first one is, is playing the long game. Um, in this age of uh, us millennials wanting everything now, um, it really has become something that that's really affected my life, uh, to be completely honest. I'm at that stage where um, I'm really looking at a delivery that's going to take five days, um, and I would much rather travel to a store um, to try and find this thing. The, the only thing is, um, what I end up doing is I end up spending months searching for this good that I can get right now. Um, where I could have literally just waited a few days for delivery. I mean, if I think of something as simple as getting a haircut, um, I'll, on the day, phone to try to get an appointment, can't get an appointment. Um, and in the end, I end up getting my hair cut sort of a week later than, than what, it, what it should be. Um, and so I think this is just that message of, of not getting too despondent when the final outcome of whatever this is, is far in the future. Um, and, and really learning to, to be a little bit patient, um, which is one of those basic things, but one of those things that I've um, kind of just really had to increase my focus on uh, in recent times. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's really just uh, a matter of just trying to rationalize that to myself. Um, just try to be a bit more patient. And uh, if it's booking in an appointment and the appointment can only happen in a month's time, rather book it in, get it there. Um, and, you know, that time will come eventually. And uh, by the time I get there, um, I've found uh, after trying this for a few weeks, I'm much more happier. Barry, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's a key insight. I think that it, it's, it kind of talks to our need for instant gratification. And as you say, millennials suffer from this quite badly because that's what we've grown up with, right? So everything is on demand. Our food is on demand. Our media is on demand. Everything is on demand. And so the moment we have to wait more than like a few minutes for something, um, all of a sudden, all our our motivation disappears. I mean, I I think about the fact that if you have a website these days and your website doesn't load in like the first (laughs) 0.001 milliseconds, your viewers just click away. They can't even wait a few milliseconds for your website to load. Um, and so I think I think it's kind of indicative of the world we live in today. It's it's kind of pushed a lot of the great technological innovations of the past, but it's also kind of played with our psychological levers in in a way that's quite damaging. Yeah. And like you say, the more we're able to be patient, the more we're able to just not require everything to happen right now, the better decisions we can make for our long-term future. It's very easy to follow our instincts in the moment. It's very, very difficult to think about what is best for our future selves and to act that, uh, act accordingly and act in that way, knowing yeah. that we're going to maybe feel some discomfort now, but for a better better solution going forward. And so I think for, for all of us, we have to keep reminding ourselves of this and keep fighting against the kind of instant gratification that we feel. One example, Chad, is that I've recently deleted the Uber Eats app off my phone right. because <laughs> I found myself getting addicted to the fact that I could order food directly to my door without making any efforts, right? Yep. And so I was spending money unnecessarily because I was lazy to get in my car and go drive to a grocery store and buy some lunch. Um, so that's one example of a way that I'm trying to fight that urge to just have yeah. everything on demand in my hands immediately and actually realize that the best things in life are those that you work for and you work hard for over a long period of time. And the more we can do that, the less we can worry about the instant stuff, the better our life is going to be. 
100%, Barry. I'm, I'm glad you've, you've taken that dramatic step. Um, you know, that, that's really a hard <laughs> step for some. I mean, I think of myself and my fiance last night. We were just kind of, uh, you know, watching some TV and we, we really just felt like something sweet and we had to resist. Uh, because you're completely right. You can have nothing in your fridge. Um, and within 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, you've got this amazing ice cream at your door um, in the form that you want. Um, even sort of fresh gelato, if you'd like. There's so many options these days. Um, and uh, yeah, you're completely right. Um, I will certainly probably not be getting a, a gelato maker because um, I think that's going to take many an hour to put <laughs> together. Um, but you're probably right. The 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 uh, the sort of satisfaction that would come out of that probably would be uh, much higher if we if we actually look at it. Um, on to the next one, um, which is also kind of just a, a tiny little insight of mine this week, um, and th that is one of life's certainties. Uh, no matter what happens, the sun will rise again tomorrow. Um, and so this idea was actually passed on to me by one of my accounting, my financial accounting lecturers um, in university uh, by the name of Charles Forbes. And uh, I mean, the context of this was, uh, you know, leading into exams, no matter how bad the exam goes, whether you do incredibly well at it or whether you completely flunk it and really have to redo a whole year of studying. Um, one of the eventualities that you cannot deny is that when you get home, you know, you're going to go to bed and tomorrow the sun's going to come up again. And uh, for me, it's just kind of this wider message that um, as big as we can make things in our mind, uh, we need to remind ourselves that we are only a part of a much bigger narrative. Um, and, you know, there's as much of a travesty as something can be in our life. Um, there's something like this, which is which is just going to keep happening. You know, the sun is just going to keep rising every single day. Um, and on the back of that, um, one of the other fantastic things and, and one of the other gifts um, that I feel we have is we could be on a, an, a, a dark day. We, we, we could really be on, on one of the most miserable days we've ever had um, and and really wake up the next morning feeling completely fresh, have complete different insights, have different mood and a different feeling about the world. Um, and so I think that's that's such a great, uh, great gift. Don't you think, Barry, that the sun brings us such a refreshing uh, possibility to just reset every day? Yes, it, it really is. And I, I, I love this message because it, it's something that's really helped me in the, in the last kind of year or so, like remembering that this is the case. And the way yeah. I've internalized it, Chad, and kind of the, man, the mantra that's in my mind is, is this, the phrase, this too shall pass. Yeah. And the idea that whatever you're going through, no matter what it is, no matter how bad it is, how good it is, how average it is, this too shall pass. Yeah. And so if you can just persevere, you can just hold yourself, you can just survive that period of darkness, the sun will come out that next morning. Yeah. And that is the basis for optimism, right? That is the basis for the fact that there are endless clean slates. No matter how many mistakes you make, no matter how many things go against you, there's another clean slate coming, there's another exactly. sun tomorrow that you can use, and this too shall pass. And so often this is the only kind of consolation that you can give to someone when they're in a tough period because often yeah. you can't solve their problems. You can't solve their, what's gone wrong. You can't bring something back. You can't take something away. All yeah. you can remind them is that time will heal this and the sun will come up. So I think it's a great message. It's something we need constant reminders of. We need people around us, like yeah. our friends and family and partners, telling us that it's okay. I, I know this hurts. I know you're feeling it. But this yeah. too shall pass and the sun will come up tomorrow. Absolutely. Well, if you as a listener to this podcast are going through something, um, please, we hope you take a little bit of something from that. Shall we move on to our next section, Barry? Let's do it. What's on your mind? I asked Barry that question for a very specific purpose, uh, because what's on your mind this week is clearly 
nothing. We are wondering whether everyone is kind of just quarantining themselves um, as a result of the coronavirus, but we don't have any questions. Um, and as a result, we've reached the end of our episode, Barry. Yeah, I, th I think it's important to realize that you can't get the coronavirus by sending us a question. So please do send them in, right? By sharing that question, you're not sharing anything else but the question. So we, so we really do encourage you to send through some stuff. We've had some great questions in the last couple of weeks. So please send through your voice notes or even in text if you, if you don't want your voice on the, on the air. Uh, but we really enjoy chatting through those. So, so please send that through going forward. But Chad, it's been a really great episode. And we are now 18. We can finally have, I don't know, a, a, a bottle of champagne to celebrate our 18th episode. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, for those long-time listeners of this uh, podcast, uh, we'll have to get uh, a little bit of a non-alcoholic champagne for, for Barry, my co-host. Um, but yeah, it feels <laughs> good to have uh, to have reached that that little milestone, and long may it continue. Thanks again for tuning in to Across the Pond. I'm Chad Sturley from London, and uh, my co-host Barry uh, from Johannesburg, South Africa. We hope you've enjoyed this little ride with us, and uh, we'll see you again next week. This was episode 18 of Across the Pond. Oh, 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 oh.